I think if, um, if you uh, came to America and witnessed this season in America as an uninformed first-time visitor, if you were seeing this, this Yuletide observance while knowing really nothing about how it is all associated with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, with the birth of Jesus Christ, you might just conclude that this season really does still have a special and wholesome quality to it. I know the outsider, or even those of us who are accustomed to Christmas time, might not always sense that, especially if looking upon all the glitz and the, the materialism that sometimes seem to be all around. But there still is something that gives us that warm feeling when we think about this time of celebration. We see families gathering together, families feasting together, families sharing gifts with one another, enjoying each other's company. And all these familial associations cause us to emotionally feel that warmth, no matter who it is that might be witnessing the events. At least, that's the way we see it if we're more idealistic types. And that most cherished family aura that surrounds Christmas time can, can have the effect of touching our hearts whether we truly know Christ, whether we really believe in him to be as the incarnate God, or whether we don't. I think that aura that attracts the non-Christian to often participate in the secular observations of the holiday is something that's present in our world today. And I think it true as well that for the Christian who has been taken in and intrigued with that goodness of the cultural phenomena of Christmas as family interacting together, that we can almost start thinking that that picturesque family unity is part of the very reason Christ came in human flesh as if he came into this world to promote this familiar happiness. If we do think that, if we are thinking that, well, what we're about to read in Matthew chapter 10 will sound to us to be outrageous, almost unbelievable. Here in this passage, this passage that we are about to read, we once again find Jesus speaking to us, speaking to us about why he came. And he speaks here about family. But his words aren't words of family unity. His words, the words he speaks, are words of division. A division existing even within our very family units. For the very reason of his coming. For the very reason that he came in the flesh. Please join me in reading Matthew 10 verses 34 through 39 as we explore what might sound to us to be a bit perplexing as we find Jesus' own commentary on families being divided. Pray with me first before we encounter this text. Father, we come to you today and we ask you to help us bow before your word. We pray, Lord, that we would submit to your truth. We pray that especially, Lord, because we, we recognize that this text that we will soon read is, is a difficult one. It speaks to us of things in this world that we look upon and, and think that's not the way it should be. And so, Lord, as we come to this text, we ask that you would be our teacher. We ask that you would be our help. We ask that you would be our guide and that you would direct us in your truth. Use your word to change us 
to understand ourselves rightly and to understand you rightly. Please do that, Lord, today. And we will glorify your name for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So again, this is Matthew 10, beginning at the 34th verse. Jesus is saying these words. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. Does it shock you to hear those words? Does it astonish you to know that these are words which have been spoken from the very mouth of Jesus Christ? Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not. Oh no, not peace, Jesus is saying. I have come to bring the sword. For him to say that, well, it likely brings to our minds thoughts that Christ sees that his very purpose in coming incarnate was actually to start battles. It sounds as if he were coming into this, this earthly realm in order to bring wars. I think that conclusion perhaps takes Jesus' point a little too far. When he speaks of the sword, I think it's most likely that the sword he brings is to be thought more about as an instrument that cuts and thus divides rather than an instrument designed to slay. I say that especially because when Luke in his gospel writes of this same event using very nearly the same words, he uses the word division rather than speaking of the sword. But even so, I would still accede to the fact that sometimes divisions can actually lead to a sword being wielded as a weapon. Sometimes, because Christ has come, there will be a violent result, regardless of how we parse a single word. The inescapable truth that we are learning here is that a warm, fuzzy feeling of family unity was really not to be expected as a part of Jesus' coming. Division within families was, and it still is, a part of what it means that Christ came. It's not so much that Christ's very purpose for entering this world incarnate was with the goal of dividing peoples, dividing families, but divisions of all kinds, including those within family units, are something that should be seen as inevitable, an inevitable result of his having come. It's a natural effect. Some will come to Christ, others won't, and the resulting difference in mind will bring divisions among mankind. 
As I indicated when I introduced the topic, our Western world seems in its holiday celebrations to erase the very thought of division. And perhaps that's so because we don't in this, this part of the world experience those divisions in their most extreme. Thankfully, we don't. And perhaps contributing to the, the reason we don't see those extreme divisions is the fact that many unbelievers in America are comfortable in accepting a more cultural view of Jesus Christ, a view that is a little more watered down. Many an American unbeliever will allow Christ into their life if all he is is the baby in the manger or one who is a wise teacher or Christ who is the embodiment of love. But absent from those true descriptions of Christ for such a person are some of the equally true attributes of who he is. He's the Lord of all. He's the judge of both the wicked and the righteous. It is ignored by some of the more secular, secular participants in the Christ, uh, Christmas holidays that Jesus truly is one who has declared that if a person will not take up his or her cross and follow him, that that person cannot be deemed worthy, worthy of him. And when we as Christians think about that, we can think that our own thinking is influenced by cultural views like that. But we also might become even more conflicted when we not only read in Matthew about a Jesus who does not come to bring peace but to, but to bring a sword, because we have also read in the scriptures and embraced the scriptures which teach us of another side of Jesus. Isaiah prophesied of Jesus saying, he would be the future Prince of Peace. We have it on our wall. The host of heaven gathered and they praised the birth of Christ, saying, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. God through Jesus Christ reconciles us to himself. In Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. And in that sense, he is bringing peace as we've been taught through works like 2 Corinthians. Jesus coming into this world is so that we would gain a peace by the blood of his cross. We know these truths from scripture. Can this same Christ be both prince of peace and the one who brings the division of the sword? The answer is yes. Yes, he can. Yes, he is the bringer of peace, and yes, he is the sword bearer. We who know Christ know that peace. The believer in Christ, the one who has a gift of the saving faith, has God's vengeful wrath forever removed against him or her. We should know that. By having faith, we, we do gain an immediate peace with God, and in the end, all who have this faith will receive an eternal peace, a peace in eternal life, no more wars, no more sin, no more death. But we who are in Christ, why we live on this earth, are also people why we live here, living in an age between the ages, an age between the first coming of Christ and an age between the second, the one 
where the peace that has been proclaimed by the angels will be the peace that's forever experienced. So we remain in this life, in this in-between world. And why we remain on the pilgrimage to eternal rest and eternal peace, there will in fact be divisions experienced. Experienced in this world, caused among the citizens of the world for the very reason that Christ has come. You see, our passage today, our passage is addressing not what Jesus accomplishes in his coming as much as it addresses what will be experienced because he has come. In our passage that, that we read, it speaks even louder about humanity than it really speaks about Jesus' earthly and eternal accomplishments. And what it says about humanity is that because he has come, the result of his coming will in fact mean that he has set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Matthew actually borrows those words from the prophet Micah. And when Micah spoke those words, he was speaking as a, of a much different circumstance than what Jesus is speaking into. Micah was speaking of the inevitable result that would transpire as a result of the sinfulness that existed in one of Israel's sinful kings. Because of that sinful leader, there would be a sinful people. And the result would be that the social structures such as family would disintegrate. Yet while the coming of Jesus Christ is not near being that same thing, and that Christ is the one without sin, Jesus is still saying that the very same sort of result comes with his coming as the righteous king of kings. There will be that same sort of disintegration in family institutions. There will be divisions because of the coming of Jesus Christ. Divisions are in this world because there are differing minds as to whether one should submit to Christ or not. And those divisions will in fact infiltrate right into the very midst of our own families. But you really already know that, I'm sure. In fact, I know that some of you already know that quite well. Know it because it has personally struck you and entered into your own family unit. It's such a, a beautiful thing to experience when brothers and sisters and mothers and daughters and sons and fathers are all living in harmony that's, that's created by having this same unified mind of Christ but it never takes such a distant journey out on a limb of a family tree before finding a relative of a different faith or a relative of no faith or a relative of a compromising faith. And with that reality, a true sense of division can creep into the very life center of the blood bond of a physical family. Now, I should say that the reality that divisions will exist in families is never licensed for a Christian to fuel the flames of division. Though Matthew describes a division that can result in a person's enemies being a part of one's household, as people in Christ, we are actually called to love even those enemies. We wouldn't dare think the call to love an enemy, it would be somehow less when that person we have in mind is one of the closest ones to us. But as we seek to love those who don't love Christ, the potential for peaceful coexistence will be challenged 
and sometimes will rise to the surface, sometimes because the unbelieving family member has created and magnified the rift. But all the same, sometimes that rift is something more existing by the godly actions that some of us must take. In a sense, sometimes the rift is created by the ones who most love Christ. And that's because when he or she loves Christ, that believer can never bear to see Christ's honor besmirched. We should advance his honor, always advance his honor. You know, I know one family who has peacefully and graciously asked a father and a father-in-law when he is in the presence of his grandchildren to be a little less overt about the way he lives his life contrary to Christ's demands for godly living. The grandfather has responded by, in essence, severing family ties, rejecting all attempts at reconciliation. Family divisions are arising all the time in our day. They arise when a young relative begins to live sexually in ways opposed to Christ's demands. Divisions exist as the Christian endeavors to love that family member well, but as a matter of conscience might see best to not blindly sanction a relationship other than one that's been sanctioned by God. Choices sometimes have to be made by the Christian. They'll need to be made. Do I attend that wedding when the wedding, by all appearances, why it self-proclaims to be a religious ceremony is in essence mocking God? These are divisions that arise within families, divisions that are more common in our Western world. And sometimes they can arise within the families of our own church. But as I said before, though the divisions that Jesus seems to have in mind are of all sorts, and therefore violence need not be implied by the word sword, still sometimes, even in some places, even in some places in America, though less frequently, I suppose, those divisions do, do grow violent. They can actually lead to the, the sword being wielded as a weapon. I imagine all of you have heard of honor killings. In some cultures, especially in Islamic nations, you will at times read of a father killing his child because the child has left the Muslim religion to follow Jesus Christ. Thus, that is perceived to be a dishonor to the family. This summer in, in Texas, a practicing Muslim father was convicted of the murder of his Christian son-in-law and the plotting to kill his own daughter because of what he saw was dishonor to his family name because the daughter had converted to Christ. Divisions of all type exist among families, sometimes extreme division. They arise, they are to be expected, and it's true that we as Christians should all be living as peacefully as we can with all and not seeking to create the division. But if and when we have a role in fostering a division, it will always be a godly role if we are in fact rightly seeing that our first priority must be to our God. After all, Jesus tells us, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Jesus, our Savior, is telling us He is to be the one who is preeminent in our life. And the more you see where His place is to be in your life, the more you will also see how divisions are so prone to arise. You see, the world imposes conflicting demands upon us. We know it does. Aspects of our lives always want to take first place over every other aspect of our life. Who do we give first priority to? What do we give first priority to? Will it be our studies or our jobs or our pastimes or our families? Do you desire to be best known as being the preeminent student in your school? Well, then you consider schooling most important. More important than sports, more important than friends, more important than mother or father or sister or brother, more important than your Savior, Jesus Christ. To do best in school, school demands more of you. It's, a, it's an aspect of your life that, that just might want first place in your life. Or maybe it's your job. Your job might demand of you to give it the preeminent place? Do you wish to rise to the top of your employment? Well, be the one who sacrificially gives them himself or herself to their career. Know every detail about every product your employer sells, every system your company utilizes. Be immersed in every aspect of your employment by putting more time into it than anything else. Spend less time with your family, with your church family, and more time with your job. There are just always differing parts of your life beckoning you to give that part of your life the most attention. For some, maybe some here, there is one particular aspect of your earthly life, maybe there is, other than Christ, to which you give priority. Family, job, school, sport, hobby, amassing wealth, it could be almost anything. And to that list, we might just be inclined to add Christ as just another one of those things that demand our attention. So many things, so many people, so many beings in this life might demand our affections. But what we must see is that there is such a major difference when it comes to Jesus Christ. Family is not your God. A job is not your God. Your school is not your God. Lord knows a sport is not your God. Jesus is. The demands of every part of life to be first in your life is illegitimate. The demand of Christ, however, is the demand of God. And when Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, when such things are being said by Jesus, Jesus is not speaking to us as one of many parts of our lives demanding a preeminent place. He is speaking to you as your Lord and God. He is demanding priority as the only God. And his demand on our lives is a right demand to take priority. Even when that priority will clash with our family unity. You see, we're not to say, I will follow Jesus only as far as he fits into my family life. 
I will consider myself his disciple with the proviso that I follow him only as far as he doesn't conflict with the will of my father or my mother or my son or my daughter or my wife or my cousin or my uncle or my aunt. Carve out any niche for competing affections and you are not acting as one worthy of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. And he has the right to say it, of course, because he is our God, he is our Lord. He demands priority. He has the right demand for priority. We must give him priority even above our family life. Wonderful message, isn't it? A wonderful message, especially for a time when we are humanly focused on family celebration, isn't it? I must follow Christ above all, even when that might mean I experience some sort of separation from my family. I must follow Christ even though Christ demands my loyalty to him above loyalty to everything and everyone else. Wonderful message. It really is most wonderful. Wonderful even when we live in a moment of time where there are so many competing family interests. It's a wonderful message, especially in the white light of the way our passage ends and the way this message can then be applied in our family lives. First, to close, look with me at this amazing last verse. And then secondly, and lastly, we'll spend some time applying this teaching to our families, especially to our divided families. What Jesus says after revealing the vision that he brings because of our full loyalty to him is demanded. He also then says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. In other words, if you place the things of your life, be it family or anything else, that you consider that interest above all interest, above your interest in Christ, that you start, when you start looking that a satisfaction in life that you seek through your schooling or through your job or through any endeavor, even your family, if it's apart from Christ, that will result in, excuse me, that will result in losing all self-satisfying life, the life you most seek. Place the things of this world above commitment to your Lord and you are placing yourself in danger of missing Christ and missing his eternal blessings altogether. One, true, one person's true usefulness to God and to his family diminishes when Christ is not preeminent. And when we attempt to, to gain a self-worth apart from Christ, if that's all we do in the end, we will find that, we are, that our self-seeking always will result in an everlasting death of torment, not a self-satisfaction in life. But to the contrary, to the contrary, losing one's life for the sake of Christ will have the effect of finding a true life, an abundant life, an eternal life, a life that will be shared in glory with your Savior Jesus Christ for all eternity. You see, there is a great divine blessing that flows to the one who is fully committed to Christ, even if that commitment will result in an earthly death. The result is that you gain what would 
forever be elusive. You gain Christ. You gain eternity. Even as divisions are being experienced and sometimes heartbreaking, the one who is united to Christ will gain forever an everlasting place, an everlasting life with God that without Christ he could never, ever have. And when you start seeing that, it leads us to see just how these verses can be so wonderfully applied within our families and of special benefit towards those in our families whose loyalty to Christ is so non-existent that these inevitable divisions arise. You see, if we see that our only comfort in hope and hope in life and death is in our faithful Savior, Jesus, we will want everyone in our families to know him as we've known him. And that means we won't illegitimately foster divisions, even though we sometimes see that those divisions arise. And when we are experiencing those family times of gathering, and when those dividing lines are, are seen, yes, but, but still a little more set aside, maybe because it's a particular time of year, we will start looking within those gatherings for opportunities to illuminate Christ into the lives of any wayward son or daughter or parent. Can you think of any more natural point to be the starting place to speak about Jesus and his worth than at a time of year when Christ should be the central reason for the family gathering? What a wonderful opportunity to engage unbelieving family with the blessing of why Christ entered into our world and how it is that by us losing our lives in Christ, it is then that we gain a true and eternal life. And even in those cases where divisions within families have grown into a seemingly uncrossable chasm, we who have known Christ's blessings for ourselves will, because of our loyalty to him, always seek the wayward prodigal. Even if that means that our means of doing that, because of the division, is limited to our prayers to God as opposed to prayers combined with our words spoken to the wayward family member who refuses to be present. Christ has come incarnate, and that will bring division. But never forget that by his coming, as we've seen on past Sundays, he also fulfills the law and the prophets. He brings a righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. He also came incarnate to call sinners to himself in order to heal the sickness of sin that has invaded every fallen creature, ourselves and our family members alike. And Lord willing, we'll also see next week that by his coming, he has been the servant of humanity by giving his life as a ransom for many. Please, Please see this season as a season of opportunity for your family, even beyond your family. See it as an opportunity to pray for the lost and to share the message of the victory of the incarnate Christ. He came in the world for sinners like ourselves and for sinners like your daughter and your son and your father and your mother and your cousin and your uncle and your aunt and your second cousin and those far removed. He is our only hope. He came in the world for people like us. May we all put our hope in him 
and share our hope with others. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we conclude our worship today, we ask, Lord, that you would that you would imprint your truth upon our minds. We pray, Lord, that you would change our lives and then use us to change the lives of others. Lord, may we know the blessing of union with Christ and through knowing that blessing, become a blessing to a fallen world, become a blessing to a fallen family. Use us, we pray for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ, for the glory of our Savior. We praise you for him, and we pray that we might demonstrate him to the world. And we pray it in his name. Amen.